welcome to the worship service at the Seventh-day Adventist Church in Hayward, California, a multicultural church in the San Francisco East Bay that worships on the Seventh-day Sabbath, Saturday. The ministry of the Word by Pastor Paul Penno is the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ to forgive sin and save from sin by his cross and ministry as priest in the heavenly sanctuary, the third angel's message in verity. Join us now as the service is in progress. It about takes your breath away when you realize what's going on in a prayer that the disciples offered to Jesus. Here's a prayer that's almost a complete turnaround from the kind of prayers that we're used to praying. Instead of in their usual stance of asking the Lord, Lord, please give me this, give me that, and give me the other, the Apostle John catches the disciples in kind of a casual snapshot as they pray that the Lord would receive something himself. You know, have you ever seen water flow uphill? You might as well, when you hear a prayer like this, this is what I call the backward prayer coming from ordinary people in John chapter 4 and verse 31. It says, In the meanwhile, his disciples prayed him, saying, Master, eat. You know, almost all of the prayers that the Lord receives in his great communications center up there are just the exact opposite. Master, please give me this. Give me something to eat. Give me that. And God is thought of as some kind of mankind's great Santa Claus. And it is hoped that Christmas from him will be every day. Thanks, Lord, for what you gave me yesterday. But what have you done for me today? That's usually the kind of prayers we offer. And that's, again, for keeping me. Thank you, Lord, for keeping me in my right mind. Amen. Goodbye, Lord. When we learn to widen our horizons and begin to pray for other people, I think God must certainly be delighted. We're getting our eyes off of ourselves, and we're starting to see the needs of others. Prayers for someone to be healed, perhaps for someone to be fed, even prayers for the whole world. The Lord taught his disciples to pray for others, and these prayers are good. People who can pray for others, I think, are growing up a little bit spiritually, A child makes tremendous progress when he can ask for a toy for his brother and sister instead of a toy for himself. But too often, even when we ask for something for our fellow men, we still have not moved very far from the center of self. If our prayer isn't self-centered, at least uh, it is us-centered, and each of us knows someday somebody's going to pray for me, and I'm going to get mine too. We human beings are just like those little cats out in my backyard who are lined up along the fence waiting for me to open the back door and put out the food in the bowl, and then there's going to be a feeding frenzy, you can be sure. But if we don't ask the Lord for things for ourselves and for others, what can we pray about, Pastor? And the disciples' backward prayer, I think, opens up for us a whole new world of understanding. Master, you eat. I think the master rarely hears prayers like this one, a prayer that is in reverse gear. Master, you eat, because we can sense that you are hungry. You've had a long, hard journey today, and it's been hot and dusty out there on the road, 
And look, we have gone into the town and into the shops, and we have bought some bread and butter and some milk and raisins and figs and almonds. It is a tasty feast. Master, we've been thinking about you, and we understand how you feel. We know it's no fun to be tired and worn out and hungry. Master, you eat. What a wonderful thought, isn't it? It's rare when a child who thinks of giving his benefactors anything, he may give Santa Claus credit for his Christmas gifts, but he finds it hard to think in terms of Santa-centeredness. I mean, that fat, jolly old guy, Santa, he has that toy factory up there in the North Pole, doesn't he? How can Santa ever have need for any toys or anything? He can just make it there. All the food he wants right there, Mrs. Claus makes it for him. What else could Santa need? It's almost as difficult for us to imagine the Lord Jesus as in want or in need. Since he is infinitely wealthy, who of us could give him anything he needs unless we think like children in the Christmas ads who may leave him a Santa sandwich and a bottle of soda when he comes down the chimney? We give him, you know, our little tithes and offerings, but who can seriously imagine that these little trifles enrich the Lord. We expect perhaps a momentary smile of indulgent approval from him, after which he passes on in infinite plenitude and omnipotence and omnipotence and with crowds of eager angels hovering around him like secretaries and aides waiting at his beck and call. Even a King Croesus couldn't add a feather's weight to God's treasure. But here you have the Son of God He sits in human poverty. There he is by Jacob's well. He's not playing thirsty. He really is thirsty. Does he have to stay thirsty? Can he really feel thirst too, like we do? If so, why should he not, by a touch of his finger, transform the old well into a refrigerated fountain drink? If he really feels hungry, why doesn't he just speak to a stone? and transform it into a golden brown loaf of freshly baked bread. The power to do it, you know, was at his command. Well, back in the days before the Model A, Henry Ford, the inventor, once took a party of wealthy friends for a drive out in the country. And one of the richest, he was one of the richest men of the world, Ford. He could have summoned, I suppose, a lot of chauffeurs chauffeurs with limousines to Uh, escort his guests out into the country, but instead he had kind of a romantic thought and he decided he wanted to take his crew, his bunch out there with the Model T Ford. And as often happened with his customers who bought the Model T, why this uh, bulky little engine broke down on the road and he was unequipped to repair it himself. This famous car manufacturer found himself dependent on the services of a little village mechanic. He was determined not to capitulate to his joking guests, and old Henry resisted the temptation to phone up the factory to ask for Lincoln sedans to come out and to rescue the party, and so he faced the breakdown as any common motorist would do, and he waited for the mechanic in the little village to repair the car. And his guests, they just enjoyed the spectacle of the world's most famous car maker playing incognito to the unsuspecting country mechanic. Charge him plenty, 
urged one of the passengers. He's rich. Just really charge him a lot on the invoice. Well, then, the mechanic said, why doesn't he ride around in a good car instead of the Model T? And you know, Christ didn't need to come and walk around on this earth. He could have had angels escort him wherever he wanted to go, couldn't he? And he came in his hunger and in his thirst. He could have summoned an army of angels to rescue him any moment that he wished. And when several years later a mob were brandishing swords and clubs and shoved him along to Caiaphas' house, he told his disciples that he actually had a rescue mission standing ready at hand at a flash of notice to come and help him heavenward if he wanted it. Because we read in Matthew 26, verse 53, Don't you know that I could call on my Father for help? And at once he would send me more than 12 armies of angels. Isn't it a good thing that we're not capable of yielding to that kind of temptation? I think we would really keep the angels busy, wouldn't we? Getting us all kinds of, out of all kinds of difficulties, as popular imagination long ago conceived. Maybe we, we think of these as fairies, you know, running around doing little things and odds and ends for us and making our life more comfortable. We would really keep those angels busy if they were at our command, wouldn't we? One wonders if the angels enjoyed watching the Creator of the world. He was sitting there on the well of Samaria, waiting for someone to come along and to offer him a drink of water. Must the Lord of heaven and earth sit there on a hot day as helpless as any other wayfarer? Yes, he must. Because the rules of the contest with Satan require that he lay aside his advantages his divine advantages. He chooses not to do anything supernatural to help himself. Even should he starve, he refuses to call headquarters and ask for a fleet of angels, limousines, to come and rescue him. He must meet life's problems exactly as we must meet them. The Father entrusts himself. Think of this. The Heavenly Father entrusts his Son to the hospitality of human beings. And if they fail him, he must perish as anyone else. And when men at last crucify Jesus, he dies right there on the spot. You know, the infinite Son of God has surrendered himself to be enmeshed in our finite helplessness, That's quite a risk, isn't it? I mean, that the Father took when he sent his Son to be the guest of sinful humanity. Did the Father make a mistake when he submitted his Son to the hospitality of this world? Fortunately, no. Our disciple heroes, and there were other good people who took good care of Jesus, even urging him to eat. I think very likely that the woman of Samaria herself was probably one of them. Can you imagine how she must have felt later that evening when Jesus was a guest in her village? Why, Master, I've just remembered that drink of yours. I forgot all about it, listening to your words. Can you ever forgive me? And what about lunch? Have you had anything all day? 
I'm going to cook you up a good proper dinner right now. I can think the woman of Samaria said that to Jesus. Wouldn't any good-hearted woman react the same way? And not once, but probably many times the disciples prayed this backward prayer, Master, you eat, you get some rest, you go to bed, we're going to stay up and we'll finish the dishes and we'll do the laundry. You take a vacation. You get those new clothes you need. It's likely that living with Jesus for three and a half years, they found many occasions for thinking about his needs, don't you think? We read of social occasions when dinners were served in Jesus' honor in homes where he was welcomed as a guest. Anybody with simple human compassion who met him on his earthly path would soon find a way to pray to him a backward prayer. Is there anything that you need, Jesus? I'd like to help you. But we are not so concerned now, I suppose, with those stories long ago. What is the lesson for us today? Just let us meet him and see him now, today. What is the lesson of the backward prayer for us? And then our childish, self-centered prayers, when we begin to think of Jesus' needs, are going to just seem to be completely out of date. The disciples' backward prayer, Master, you eat, gives a glimpse of even more astonishing prayers that are yet to come from human hearts like yours and mine. When I said that the Father entrusted his Son to the hospitality of the human race, I said something very serious. What it means is that the Father brought himself to trust that our fallen human nature would escape the rut of its self-centeredness and would respond to the needs of the Son. And this is what lies behind this backward prayer of the disciples. The Father sending his Son to this world presupposed on God's part backward faith to begin with. God had backward faith. You know, what we usually think of as faith is what is man's part to have and to use. It is we who we think have faith in God for it is he who is trustworthy. But what a staggering thought to realize that God has faith in human beings or he would never have sent his son to this world. And this faith of God in man was exercised before the foundation of the world when the Father and the Son agreed together to make an infinite sacrifice for man should he fall. And when John said... We love him because he first loved us. He could also have added, we believe in him because he first believed in us. Paul has the same idea. He says something profound in Romans 3, verse 3. He says, what if some did not believe? Shall their unbelief, their non-belief, make the faith of God without effect. And there's a play on words here in the original that's beautiful. Shall man's non-faith cancel God's faith? Which of us could bring himself to trust a converted thief enough to put in his hands every cent that we make, possess, and expect him to hold it for us? Which of us could trust 
human nature that much. If you were going to evangelize a, a band of notorious kidnappers, could you bring yourself to entrust your newly born son or daughter to their arms while you left for an extended trip overseas? That illustrates what God did. I want you to look at that little baby in the cattle pen there in Bethlehem. Most people in the town, they were sleeping just as well that night. They were not even caring whether this little baby in the cattle stall survived or not. It was a very rough way for a little baby to get started in life, but there were some who did care. And they proved that God made no mistake when he entrusted his precious son to human hospitality. And although humans eventually rejected and crucified him all along his way, there were some whose kindness spilled over into a concern for the needs of the Son of God. You know, it's a beautiful sight to see him cradled as a baby in the arms of a tender, loving mother and to see affectionate friends lingering near him all his earthly days, even to the end. Well, you say, what about us today? Do you you imply that we too can get beyond the pets lining up along the back fence there waiting for the food handout? Can we actually get beyond thinking about ourselves? Can we conceive of a prayer that is Christ-centered instead of me-centered? Is that possible? I have no way of knowing what's in your heart except as I look inside my own heart. And if I'm wide of the mark from now, you can just write me off as some kind of a worst of fools, but I must own up to the truth that most of my prayers are very self-centered. What has kept me going as a Christian has usually been Anxiety won for number one salvation, my personal assurance of salvation. What has, I, it causes me to ask the question, why am I driven to keep the Sabbath, to pay tithe, to turn down the world's pleasures? Has been mostly my own desperate need, probably for eternal security. I've been the hungry one. My soul has been too little to feel big enough to pray, Master, You eat. Day after day, it's been, Master, I'm hungry. Master, I need salvation. I want assurance. Perhaps you're beginning to suspect that you and I have something in common then. I may even assume that I am talking to another fellow sinner as myself. If so, let's face up to it, that the motive of following Christ in order to save our own skins or to achieve security, or to get a reward, or escape punishment, just isn't strong enough to withstand real temptation when it comes along, is it? And such a motive is going to collapse, even though it may enable us to stay in the church and grit it out for some years. Our friends may even say of us, if anyone is going to get to heaven, so-and-so will surely make it. Just look how strong their faith is. But we have overlooked one strategic fact. The one who professes Christ from such a motive will have a price at which they will sell out sometime. While a few might hold out in danger, waiting for a higher price to be bid than others, 
the adversary of our souls knows how to maneuver each and every one of us into a situation where the bidding will eventually reach our buying point, and we will cave in if our faith is centered upon self-motives. And for some, that price of selling out, unfortunately, is pathetically low. Just the humdrum temptations, day-to-day living, they sell out. For others, it might be the greed of money. And for others, the sweet ease of luxury, the thrill, maybe, of power and prestige. And for still others, it may be illicit sex. The anticipation of the moment jams out the signal from heaven's broadcast, and the thought of expected reward in heaven or of a dreaded punishment in hell just fades out and no longer seems important. If both signals are on the same wavelength of appeal of self, is it any wonder that desire drowns out these motivations? But zero in, zeroing in on the self-centered Plexus is this area of temptation. A self-centered religious faith is as strong as sandcastles are against the next wave that comes in off the ocean. Such a faith has always been useless. But the tests of the past, dear friends, were not uh, severe enough to really show it up. A New Testament writer coined a brilliant phrase to describe the futility of self-centered faith. He called it being under the law. Being under the law. If Paul had been a cartoonist, he might have pictured the self-centered, fear-motivated, reward-earning Christian as being pinned under a giant boulder labeled under the law. Another way of putting it is that he is under the old covenant. And there are millions of sincere, earnest Christians today who need to break loose from being under the law, which is serving God either from fear of hell or hope of reward. It is a futile way of life. It's ludicrous. It's so tragic that we cannot laugh. I mean, Satan may laugh, but we can't. In these last days, all selfish faith is headed for an almost overwhelming test. For many, unless they see the truth now, it's going to mean ultimate defeat. And to our superficial judgment, self-centered faith may may have been good enough for the way our ancestors lived as we sing, give me that good old-time religion, it's good enough for me, but it can never endure, dear friends, the final test and the final crisis unless it is purified of the dross of self-centeredness. This test that the book of Revelation says will come to every living soul on earth will probe every person's soul for his or her hidden weaknesses. It is a, a severe test. It is called the mark of the beast. It's mentioned in Revelation chapter 13. And there are millions who today would be shocked at the suggestion of selling out their souls to the clever enemy of Christ, having no idea what they would do if the bidding were to go high enough. The test will produce 
a heart-gripping fear unprecedented in human experience. The anxiety of a million sleepless nights of worry is going to be distilled into a final attempt of Satan to defeat God's followers by fear. This final allurement of the appeal to security will play on the whole gamut of human temptability. It is going to be Peter again tempted to deny Christ all over again. And whether we sell out to Satan now for the trifling low bids of sensual temptations or hold out a little longer and sell out in the highest bid of Satan's finally perfected temptation supreme, it makes no difference in the end to him. He's got you. Unless we find deliverance, all who are content to remain under the law will eventually deny and betray Christ. Someone may say, well, now you've made me feel lost. Now you've made me feel lost. I admit I'm self-centered. My prayers revolve around myself and revolve about my, around my family. I never, never pray beyond that. I can't deny I'm in this religion largely for what I hope to get out of it. What else is there for me to do, you might ask? First of all, before we talk of doing something, there's something for us to see. Something for us to see. And having seen, as surely as our hearts are honest, this whole pathetic problem of self-centered life will change through believing what we have seen. What is there to be seen? The Son of God crucified on the cross. But how do we see it? Did someone make a movie? Was someone present there with a a Panavision camera to make a movie of it? Because if there had been a TV crew at Calvary shooting the entire scene just as it happened, even a full-color film wouldn't enable us to see it. Because most of us would sit in our nice, comfortable uh, theater Uh, pew, I was going to say seat, (laughs) munching on our popcorn, watching the movie, you know. In fact, the people who actually saw the real event of Calvary were not converted merely by gawking at it. If seeing the physical event were necessary to convert us, we would have an excuse for complaining to God because he hasn't shown us the film of the crucifixion scene or reenacted it for each of us to watch. Why didn't he keep a film for us, ready to program it on the world's television stations? It was long before TV was invented, but God could have done it, and then they could have it on high-definition DVDs for us today. Seeing Christ crucified, however, is something greater than any camera crew can imagine. And although 11 disciples saw it happen with their own eyes, a man who wasn't present came to understand it the best. And this is what he said. And he saw it, and he focused on it, and he wants you to let your eyes see it too. It's in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 14 and 15. The true revelation of the cross. 2 Corinthians 5, 14. We thus judge, Paul says, that if one died for all, then we're all dead. 
and that he died for all, that they which live should not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto him which died for them and rose again. From Paul's simple equation, there comes greater power, a moral force that actually turned the ancient world upside down, and it will turn your lives upside down also. Because this equation seems disarming in its simplicity. If one died for all, it is the same as saying that had he not died for all, all would now be dead. In other words, one died for all equals we all deserve to be dead. The life we now live is not our own. It is the life of Christ. And with x-ray perception, Paul saw you and me crucified when he saw Christ crucified. And the implications of this become staggering. Involved in the equation is the fact that we have nothing that we can truly call our own. Nothing. What Paul says is that if Christ had not died for us, we would be all in our graves right now. A little reflection will show that this is not some kind of pious sentimentality, but it is a cold, hard fact. And so just think of your life right now for a moment, will you? And be honest and perceptive enough And think about every good thing about your life. And what is its ultimate source? Think about every good thing right now in your life. And what is its ultimate source? You know, a millionaire's son inherits a fortune. But he has the sense to recognize that he inherited it rather than he earning, earning it. But suppose a person has the intellect and the ability to earn a million dollars, a fortune. Did he not also inherit the ability to do it? Unfortunately, there is little difference between inheriting a fortune ready-made and inheriting the ability and the circumstances to make a fortune. And the gospel simply says in both instances, the fortune is not really yours. If Christ had not died for you, all you would have that is yours, that you have earned properly, is the grave. And that is stupendous. When I speak of myself, I unwittingly appropriate what is God's property. This body that I call my own, this brain of mine, my personality, none of it is mine. Take my education or my character. At first thought, I might suppose that here is something that no one can take from me. And therefore, it must be really mine in the truest sense of the word. Haven't I acquired, worked hard to acquire it? But again, I'm mistaken. I have earned, learned all this from my environment, and my environment has been enriched with the presence of Christ working through all of the agencies that have blessed my mind and my soul. It's all the way from prenatal influences working in genetic inheritance to home upbringing, the influence of society, the schools, and every conceivable aspect of human life. The Holy Spirit is in the world and is producing a constant tension and conflict with the influences of evil. Every agency that has blessed my life is the purchase of Christ's cross. 
And that being so, once I see the equation of the cross, and how, how can I regard anything that passes through my hands as mine? Am I really entitled to any more than a corpse can grasp? We've been told that one-tenth of the money of our money we earn belongs to God, and nine-tenths belongs to us to do with as we please. But I think that the equation of Paul clarifies our confused thinking, that the tithe is a token recognition that all I have belongs to Christ, and that his love alone shall dictate the use of the nine-tenths I have ignorantly claimed as my own. There's another naive idea I have cherished also which collapses I deserve a good time. I deserve a happy good time. There is more pleasure in walking with Christ than our little cups can hold. But the good time identified with selfish pleasures is only the bitter dregs of the coffee grinds. Many good, sincere people still can't tell the difference. Even those brought up as Christians can't discern the distinct The distinction except the light shining from the cross. If one died for all, then they which live should not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto him which died for them. And in that light, it is sheer fantasy for one to imagine that he deserves selfish pleasure. Can the bewitching spell of that fantasy be broken? Yes. If Paul's word should is not misunderstood when he says that they should not live unto themselves. Here's no painful obligation, no panting, no struggling to do something bitter and burdensome. One died for all, that they which live should not, yes, cannot henceforth live unto themselves. The cross has passed an annihilating judgment on the self-centeredness that is our problem and has thus broken its spell over us. A stronger signal now comes through on the antenna, and the little self signal is drowning out. What the far-seeing apostle really says is that you find it impossible to go on living a self-centered life after you have seen the cross of Christ. Anyone who has seen Paul's equation just simply cannot remain a lukewarm, half-hearted, Laodicean Christian anymore. Jesus is still hungry today. How can we say, Jesus, Master, you eat today? Jesus is hungry today. And the hunger he knows has gone unsatisfied. He he is an unrequited bridegroom whose love has not been reciprocated, and he is hungry for your love without its self-centeredness. He's hungry for that, for a bride to yield to him her wholehearted, entire love. We're enabled to sense that he, does Jesus deserve a reward? Not we. He deserves a reward. He deserves a human heart response to the travail of his soul that has not yet been yielded to him. You may ask, well, where do I fit in in all of this? If you believe in Christ, 
as an individual, you become a part of the bride of Christ. The bride of Christ is the church. No one individual is the bride of Christ. But it's the total group that is the bride of Christ. But you become as an individual a part of the bride of Christ by opening the door of your heart to him. And unless Christ, do you think that we want to leave Jesus hungry forever for our love? Impossible. The time has to come when it is said, the marriage of the Lamb is come and his wife hath made herself ready. The time has to come. He desires a reciprocating love on the level of his love for you and for me. I think about Edward, who is pacing the platform of that railway station long ago in Knoxville, Tennessee. He was awaiting the arrival of his fiancée, who is coming in uh, from Michigan, Lita. And their wedding was to be that evening, and so he was eager, the bridegroom, um, to see his bride-to-be. And been waiting there at the station for two hours before the arrival time. And when the train finally pulled in, Edward watched anxiously until the last passengers disembarked from the train. But there was no Lita among them. She was uh, playing a trick. She was hiding mischievously within the train, and she was watching him, watching his painful look of distress on his face like clouds disappointed, disappointed on a spring morning waiting for the sunshine and nothing but clouds. And finally, Lita couldn't stand it any longer as she was hiding in there, and she rushed out and she threw her arms around Edward. With respect to his bride-to-be, Christ endures disappointment beyond description because of our human indifference, self-centeredness, Are we hiding ourselves from him while he's waiting there on the platform? Are we making him sad and disappointed? Must it be ever so? Where is our heart response worthy of his love? Would it not be the cruelty of the ages for us to continue holding Jesus at a distance, keeping him waiting, unsatisfied, divinely hungry, What can we say to him? Is there some word, a prayer, that we could offer to Jesus? Master, here am I. Here am I. Join us again next time for the word of God which will feed the soul. I am committed to bring you the fullness of the gospel as Jesus has revealed it to us in order to prepare a people for his soon coming.